0: Would you remain standing and pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning, God, acknowledging that you are above all, Lord, of the cosmos, of all there is. Lord, we pray for your Spirit to come this morning, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts and our ears to what you would have us to say this morning. Lord, I pray as the preacher of your word that you would guard my mouth from error and that you would guard these hearts from anything that I, may not say, that I may say, God, that is not pleasing to you. Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Well, if you, have, if you brought your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to open them to the Ephesians passage that Matt Breeding read, Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we're going to begin this morning. Um, As many of you know, uh, we've been talking about this, we've posted on Facebook, and it's been in the parish notes uh, since Father Ben is on sabbatical this summer. Uh, One of the things that uh, we began to talk about is what uh, we would do this summer in terms of preaching series, and so we've decided to veer from the lectionary just a bit, and so for the next uh, 12 to 13 weeks, uh, we will be looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So again, we're going to begin with chapter 1. And when I first began thinking about and looking to several months ago I, I, and asking myself, how would I introduce this book? Um, I remember one time when I, I went to a church to fill in one Sunday, kind of an introduction, if you will. that kind of disa- uh, was a disaster. Um <laughs> I went to fill in, and, and I'd done this kind of thing before as an itinerant preacher. You go, you fill out a little card, maybe about 100 words. You give it to the person that everybody in the church knows, and what they do is usually come up, stand, and introduce you as the guest pastor or preacher or whatever it is for the day. And I don't know if the guy got nervous or, or what. Um, I mean, it was in 16-point font. you could easily read it, very little bullet points. Somehow I became known as Brother Keith. I never go by that. Um, Brother Keith not, is not not quite it. Um, he called Dana Deanna. Um, he got the seminary I attended wrong, and the seminary that he said that I was currently going to was actually a really bad seminary. Actually a very liberal seminary, one that you didn't want to be in that church in particular from. And so I found myself at the end of the service not really congratula- you know, talking to people that I normally would, but really having to defend myself and re-explain my entire life to everyone. So I pray I don't do that injustice to the book of Ephesians today. And by way of introduction, really, I want us to begin today by asking a question. And, that, and the question is this. Why? Why St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians for us here at Christchurch this summer? Why St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians? Well, there's three aspects about this letter that I believe answer that question that we're going to cover in kind of an introductory way today. And they are this. Number one, the context and the background of the book of Ephesians give us here today a connection. The context of Ephesians give us a connection. Two, the structure of Ephesians imparts to us a structure of how we as Christians are to do and live life. And then thirdly, the message of Ephesians. The message of Ephesians is this, and it should be our life message, and that is that Christ is everything. So the context gives us a connection, the structure of Ephesians gives us a structure, and the message of Ephesians should be our life message. And so if you're taking notes this morning, number one is that the context of the book of Ephesians gives for us here today in the year 2015 a connection to the Ephesians back then, the church of Ephesus. How so? Well, the culture that the Ephesian Christians found themselves in back in 65 A.D. is not at all unlike what we're experiencing in our culture today. Consider the following. Ephesus had become a major city by year 65 A.D., It was a major city in the Roman province in what we now call Turkey. Um, And and it had become this really big city about 200 years prior to Paul's first visit there as a missionary in 52 AD. And by ancient standards, Ephesus was huge. It was large. It was sophisticated. It was a very diverse city. It had about 300,000 people in it. To give you perspective, in Winston-Salem there's only 236,000. So in ancient days, this is a pretty large city. It had a theater and its culture. And in this theater, it was capable of, get this, and I can't believe this. I saw pictures of it. It's amazing. It could seat 50,000 people. This is 52 A.D. The Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte, home of the Carolina Panthers, seats 75,000. So keep this in mind. 52 A.D., 50,000 people in this gigantic arena. It's quite phenomenal. Also in Ephesus, they had a cult there, a pagan religion. And that was toward the Greek goddess Artemis. And that was really the politically correct religion of the day. If you wanted to be somebody and if you wanted to be in the in crowd, it was all about Artemis. Because, see, Artemis was believed to have fallen from heaven in a pure virgin state and was the god over all fertility, the god over hunting, the god over provision the god over nature, as well as the protector of all the women and young girls in the culture. And so essentially, Ephesus was really the goddess's home. So much so that right in the middle of Ephesus stood a massive temple to Artemis. It measured about 375 feet long, 115 feet wide, had 40-foot columns cut from solid white marble, and it had in its center the goddess of Artemis herself for people to come and worship. In fact, I mean, it, it, it was it, because of its girth, and because of the engineering required, and because of the manpower needed to build such an enormous and complex structure back in that time. Today, it's considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. What in the world does all this have to do with the Christians scattered about in the little house churches throughout the Church of or Excuse me, the town of Ephesus? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. But there's several events that you need to be aware of that took place as well. And these come from Acts chapter 19. And they're in the life of Paul, St. Paul, when he was a missionary before he wrote Ephesus. See, in Acts chapter 19, particularly verses 21 to 41 from Paul's missionary journey in 52 AD, there's several events that are going to help us understand a bit more about the culture of Ephesus. Actually, I find some of these quite humorous. Paul went to Ephesus in 52 AD, okay? And once he's there, he finds a few straggling followers of Jesus. And they had only the baptism of John the Baptist. They didn't have the, the, the full kind of apostolic baptism after Christ had, had, had departed. And they had only this baptism of John the Baptist basically for repentance. And so Paul comes and tells them, y'all need to be baptized, y'all, <laughs> Paul says, y'all need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And he lays hands on them, and this phenomenal thing happens. This being Trinity Sunday, and we're going to do a baptism here in a little while. This is kind of interesting. He lays hands upon them. They receive the Holy Spirit. Well, what happens? Well, these guys or these people, I guess I'm assuming there's women in a group too, they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. In other words, these people full of the Holy Spirit start preaching. And they start preaching loud. (laughs) They start preaching to anyone and everything that will listen. Because get this, Paul takes these guys after they've been baptized, goes over to a local Jewish synagogue. And for three months, Paul and these little band of converts that have been baptized begin to preach and persuade about Jesus the Messiah. Well, it didn't work. Their efforts only resulted in the hardening of hearts of those in the synagogue. In fact, the people, the Bible tells us, that the people got so angry, they began to speak evil about Paul. They began to speak evil about these new Christians he was running around with. And they began to blaspheme Christ himself. Paul realizes, you know what? Guys, we're casting our pearls before swine here. They're not listening to us. Let's pack up and let's just politely dismiss ourselves. So that's what they do. Well, so they're out in the community now, right? Well, in the community, in the out and abouts of Ephesus, the Lord starts doing a lot of signs, miracles, and healings through Paul. <laughs> and there's always seven Jewish exorcists, if you will. Really, they're kind of hucksters. And they're taking notes of Paul's ministry. And they see what he's doing. And they begin to decide they want to get in on this ministry that Paul's doing. And so they attempt an exorcism. I guess the guy, maybe he'd been playing like Charlie Charlie. Some of you know what I'm talking about? No? Some of you are laughing. You know what I'm talking about. Right, right. Some of the kids here will know what I'm talking about. Anyway, go home, Google it, look it up. But anyway, they attempt an exorcism on a demon-possessed man saying, I adjure, which means request, you by the name of Jesus that Paul is preaching to leave. What happens? (laughs) This demon-possessed man says to these seven exorcists, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who the heck are (laughs) y'all? And the Bible says the man leaped on all seven of them, subdued them, overpowered them, tore off all their clothes, kicked them out of the house into the streets, naked and bleeding. Apparently, they were not there when Paul gave the disclaimer, do not attempt an exorcism on your own. But in Acts 20.17, it's amazing. This botched exorcism becomes known throughout all of Ephesus. And Acts 20.17 tells us that fear began to fall on the people throughout Ephesus because of this. And as a result, the name of Christ begins to be magnified. People start confessing their sins. They start repenting. And they come and the Bible tells us they start burning their magic books. And then verse 20 says that the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily there in Ephesus. All right? So you've got that going on. But Paul's ministry in Ephesus caused a lot of problems. Remember the temple and the theater I was telling you about a minute ago? Ephesus was blessed with a lot of tradesmen and craftsmen. The tradesmen made a very good living by making and selling, like, silver religious trinketry and idols for worship of artemis at the temple and they also sold a lot of stuff to tourists who came by to see visit the theater there were craftsmen at ephesus who for generations literally had taken care and were responsible for the upkeep the repair and construction of the temple arena and the theater And these guys begin to take note of what's happening around the Apostle Paul. When people began to listen to what Paul was saying and becoming followers of the way or followers of the message that Paul was preaching, i.e. Jesus Christ, people stopped buying the trinkets. People stopped coming to the temple. And they quit attending the theater. In short, Paul and his message was bad for business. And what he was preaching was a threat to the local business commerce that was dependent on the worship of false gods and the entertainment culture as a whole. So Demetrius, a silversmith, he's going to be representative of everybody. He goes and stirs the town up. He stirs them, matter of fact, into just a riotous rage against Paul and his companions. And it results in the crowd dragging several of Paul's companions off to the middle of the theater. The people file in. Demetrius accuses them of what they're doing, saying, you know, you guys are killing our economy, that you're wrong, you're evil, you're you're bad people, you need to be done away with. And all of a sudden, in a great uproar, the whole 50,000 people start screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this went on for two hours. One big riot mass of upheaval and confusion. This is going somewhere, by the way. Finally, an Ephesian clerk Someone of Rome. They get the matter under control and tell Demetrius, you know what, get this matter out of, out, of the, out of the public square. Get this thing out of the theater. Y'all take this thing to court privately, or otherwise you're about to be charged by Rome for inciting a riot, which will bring down the heavy and ugly hand of the Roman centurions. And when those guys showed up, they really didn't care who got hurt, if you know what I mean. Law and order was the pride of Rome. So what happens? The riot ceases. Paul gathers up his stuff. He gets a few of his companions, and they depart. But, but, some of the people who had come to Christ under Paul's ministry stayed. And it's these that stayed behind in Ephesus that Paul writes to some ten years later in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints were in Ephesus all right imagine this imagine friends that you had been dragged off to the theater because of the Jesus you believed in of the Jesus you preached threatened the socioeconomic situation imagine you having to stand before some 50,000 people shouting great is Artemis of the Ephesians wondering what was going to happen to you next Friends, think about the riots that just took place a few weeks ago up in Baltimore in terms of their size and violence, not the issue. What if your faith was the cause of that? What if your faith was the cause of that upheaval instead? And Just like how Baltimore is still today reeling from those riots and will be reeling for a long time, when the riot took place in Ephesus, the memory of that for the Christians and both the citizens of Ephesus did not just go away. You know what I mean? It lingered. See, it's pretty certain after that point, the, trades guilt, the trade guilds, they would no longer hire a Christian. The people who worked around the temple cult, they didn't want to have anything to do with the Christians. And we can be certain that the higher society of the theater labeled them, maligned them, and sneered at them for many years to come. Those people... They were left back in Ephesus, were marginalized. They were seen as a threat to the cosmopolitan society of Ephesus. They were seen as a threat to the, nat- to the national religion of Artemis, and also a threat to the economy. And all they did was preach that Jesus is Lord in a pluralistic culture, tolerant of much except the gospel Christ, That Christ is Lord, exclusively meaning that nothing else is Lord. And what happened? See, friends, there's no doubt that the few Christians left behind in Ephesus were in need of encouragement. And that's why Paul writes to them from prison ten years later. See, I said the context will give us a connection. And it does. Because if you've been here at Christ Church for the last six months or so, you'll know that Father Ben and I both have given a lot of pulpit time as of late, to the fact that the church in America is now being marginalized. And that what happened in Ephesus, basically to a degree, is happening right now in our midst. You can go back and listen to those sermons and read the news, but beloved, I believe today, more than ever, God's church, hear me well, today needs a word of encouragement, just like those Christians in Ephesus needed encouragement. Say, what do you mean? See, the followers of Christ in Ephesus needed to be encouraged. They needed to know that they were secure, and Paul teaches in Ephesians that they are anchored in the eternal purposes of God. You and I need to know that today too. The, the those who were in Ephesus, they lived under the threat of a dark and sinister our dark and sinister powers. They needed to know that Christ had conquered all His enemies as well as their enemies. We need to know that too. They were surrounded by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they needed to know that God had raised them up out of that spiritual death. We need to know that too. They were confronted daily on a daily basis with Gentile paganism right in their face. And they needed to know that Christ had brought them into the family of God and away from that. We probably need to know that too. They lived under the shadow of a false temple and a false idol, but they needed to know that they were the true temple of the living God. They lived in an ungodly society, and they needed to know that the gospel could transform not just their lives, but society's lives. We need to remember that too. They saw in marriage and family and business that it had been corrupted by self interest. They needed to know how the grace of God could transform all relationships in their lives. We need to know that too, and it's in Ephesians. They were under attack from the forces of darkness. They needed to know that they could remain standing in battle. We need to know that today too. This is what this and more is why Paul wrote Ephesians then, and that's why the letter is applicable to us now. See, the context of Ephesians gives us a connection. Number two, the structure of Ephesians imparts a structure to Christians on how they are to do life God first, action second. Now, let me ask you a question, and this is rhetorical. Ty, he'll answer anyway. (laughs) All right, yeah, exactly. How many of you, if you're being introduced to something new in life, you know, if something's kind of new coming at you or a concept, how, how many of you like step-by-step instructions? You know, very, very clear, like step one, do this, step two, do that, step three, do this. You know what I mean? Is that, that, you don't have to hold up your hands, but, you know, is that, is that kind of you this morning? Well, listen, if, if that's you, if that's you this morning, and, and you're kind of one of those people it's just like, hey, just give me the playbook, give me the rule book, give me the steps, the quick fix, or exact instructions. Listen, let me warn you, the structure of Ephesians is going to drive you a bit crazy. The summer, okay? So what do you, particularly on the start, what do you mean? Listen, though Paul eventually talks about Christian life behavior in Ephesians, that's not how he structures the book of Ephesians at all. That's not how he begins it. Paul, Apostle Paul is not a pragmatist. He's, first of all, a theologian and an apostle. See, in fact, the structure of Ephesians communicates something very important to us. The structure communicates something very important to us, and it's this. God first, action second. How you begin is going to determine how you end. Now, what do you mean? Let me give you a fictitious scenario, hopefully, to illustrate. Jack and Jill, young couple, they love Jesus, okay? They love each other. They love the Word of God, but they're struggling into marriage. And so they come to me for counseling. So I'm going to do a little bit of a role play here, okay? I'm here in the middle. Jill's over here. Jack's over here, right? So they come to me, and I ask, so guys, what's going on? Jill turns and says, well, Father Keith, You know, we're working on our marriage, and as you know, Ephesians 5, back there in the back, it says a lot about the marriage relationship. Let me quote it. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then she says, Now, Father Keith, what I hear St. Paul saying here is that, well i got a lot of issues going on right now that I'm working through. And if Jack is going to really love me like Christ loved the church and like the Bible says he should, then Father Keith, he should just be willing to give up everything in life. Sacrifices all to fill these voids and wounds in my life so that I'm without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. But as soon as dinner's over at night and I begin to talk to him, he just goes away and hides. Jack interrupts. He says, yeah. I've read St. Paul in Ephesians 5 also. Let me quote that. He said, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself and its Savior. Father Keith, I'm sacrificing. I'm putting in 60 plus hours a week. I've gave up this. I gave up that. I gave everything else I've ever loved. And what I hear St. Paul saying is that when, or when I read this, is that when I come home, the house is nasty, the kids are screaming, dinner isn't made, and then she talks me to death about her counseling appointment from today because she's had no adult time. When, when I say, hey, how about something to eat? She's got no right to get mad at me. She ought to submit and just go fix dinner. Even if it's a frozen pizza. Even Jesus got hungry, right? Listen. I'm making light of something here. And I don't mean to, to, to nobody take offense to this. I hope that doesn't describe anybody. I totally made that up. Listen. (laughs) Some of you are laughing. (laughs) It may be somewhat true of our household occasionally. I don't know. But anyway, I'll own that one later. Um, Let me get a drink of water. Woo, is it getting hot in here? Is it me? (laughs) My wife's in here, guys. So, yep, she knows if I'm telling a lie or not. All right, but seriously, I'm making light of this, but you know what? In that discussion, something's missing, isn't it? Something's missing. What is it? Listen, besides using the Bible as a weapon against each other, besides just that, they are now in deep weeds because instead of starting by looking at the whole book of Ephesians and what it says, they take out a concordance, look in the back of their Bible, look up the word husband, look up the word wife, and jump to the practical and particular linear, linear roles of husbands and wives in Ephesians 5. With no idea about how any of that fits in the broader structure of Ephesians. And as a result, they miss missed the bigger points. They wind up missing the gospel. They wind up missing their identity in Christ. They wind up missing the grace and mercy needed from Christ to give to one another in order to really to come to peace with each other. Because see, friends, Paul spends chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians laying out ontology or the res or the essay of the cosmos or the bene essay of all the work that Christ has done in all the world first. He lays out first all the work that Christ has done in all the world for you and me first before he starts telling people how they should live. Unlike many of his other letters, Paul does not begin by addressing a problem. He doesn't begin by addressing a heresy. He doesn't begin really doing anything like or issuing moralistic commands. He doesn't give them a model or a paradigm. St. Paul begins by stating simply what is true of the world. What is true of Christ? What is true of the world? What is true about the church? What is true about you and what is true about me? He begins with that. How you begin your theology, how you begin to think about living out your Christian life will determine where you end John Stott put it this way. He said that Ephesians is is thus a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine, chapter 1 to 3, and Christian duty, 4 to 6. Christian faith, chapters 1 to 3, Christian life, chapters 4 to 6. What God has done through Christ in chapters 1 through 3, and what we must do in consequence, chapters 4 through 6 professor i had in seminary said it this way he said that ephesian structure is like it's it kind of goes like this there's this chapters one through three therefore we do this chapters four through six god first action second don't reverse it and do like jack and jill who miss out on what god is really trying to do in your life you may say well you know (laughs) i'm just kind of one of those people man god i don't really care about the why Just tell me what to do. Listen, that's bad theology. I fear, though, that's about where 95% of us impetuous Christians live, though. And we wonder why we say, I have so many problems. There's more on that later in another sermon. But let God define reality first for you before you start trying to act. And as we go through Ephesians, remember the structure. This, this is, this Chapters 1 through 3, therefore we do this. Chapters 4 through 6, God first, action second. How you begin is going to determine where you end. All right, the context of Ephesians gives us a connection. The structure of Ephesians imparts to us a way of living. And thirdly, the message of Ephesians. The message of Ephesians. And the message of Ephesians is simply this, Christ is everything. Christ is everything. It's evident from the first two verses that Matt Breeding read quickly. First thing Paul tells us is that Paul is what he is only because of Christ. Look with me in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Christ Jesus. How? By the will of God. It's not because of Paul's credentials. It's not because of Paul's upbringing. It's not because of anything other than the grace of God that Paul is who he is. Second, Paul tells us that readers are saints who who are in Christ. The second part of verse 1, he says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The readers are who they are because of nothing in and of themselves, but because God has declared them holy and separated them out for salvation. The faithful there implied in that particular verse implies that being a Christian is not a static concept. It says, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's not a static concept. That means that growth is expected for me and for you. And thirdly, he says that blessings of grace and peace are of God. In short, you could sum it up and say it this way. All of life is a gift. All of life is a gift of God. He says in Ephesians 1-2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a guy this past week ask me, rather direct on Memorial Day, he said, "As I get it, you're a priest, he said, in An Anglican church. He said, I'm not very familiar with it. He said, but let me ask you a question. He said, do you talk about church, God, and Jesus all the time? And I kind of paused for a moment, and I thought, kind of replayed our conversation for like the last 15, 20 minutes of our encounter together. I didn't recall really saying anything about Jesus, the church, or christian wasn't really part of the conversation. And finally I told him, I said, you know, friend, I said, as a Christian, it's my prayer, and I hope your prayer, that all of my conduct, all of my speech, and all of my way of life as a whole communicates that Jesus really is the most important thing in my life. And I don't have to say much about it. I don't have to bring his name up. It's just evident. I said, I'm horrible at it. Sinners saved by grace. But it's my hope to live as though Christ is everything. Because he is Lord, not just of a few things, but Lord of everything. Friends, Ephesians is saturated with the message that Christ is everything. That's how Paul begins in verses 1 through 2. Because see, it's in and through the grace of Jesus Christ, who is the source of everything, that St. Paul was anything at all. You and I are saints only because of the grace of Jesus Christ, who is the source of everything, who decided long ago to make us saints long before the foundation of the world through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And it is in and through the grace of Jesus Christ, who is the source of everything, that the church gathered here today, everyone underneath the sound of my voice, that your church is what it is, a mystery, a new society, a true unity born into being. Friends, we had nothing to do with this. It's all because of grace. Christ is Lord, therefore Christ is everything. To summarize this introduction, the context of Ephesians, beloved, gives us a connection for today. The structure of Ephesians gives us a life structure as Christians. And the message of Ephesians gives us our message. Christ is everything. Beloved, let us carry on the ministry that Paul was doing in Ephesus And now baptize this precious little one, Evelyn Rose, here on Trinity Sunday.